Thanks for uh, entrusting this, this space. Um, and that was space S-P-A-D-E, not space S-P-I-C-E, which I ran to, into at work this week. Someone thought I was saying spice when I was saying space, and it just made <laughs> a lot of fun. Uh, this, this week, uh, Ryan, he, he, he sort of gave a quick synopsis of last week. It was like about journeying in doubt and deconstruction and reconstruction. And welcome to part two of the same vibe. Because although I'm going to speak from Scripture and we're going back into the, the Old Testament and some beautiful historical story. Uh, this is also my own walk. And um, in many ways, a walk we're still doing. <clears throat> i got to admit, I'm not really good at doing the wandering, walking thing in that I'm not a very content wanderer. I'm not a very content walker. I'm not typically just content in life. I tend, I tend to be pretty driven. Uh, I do have a lot of energy, but I also love mystery. So mystery always invites me onward. The unknown always invites me deeper whether that's scuba diving and I always want to go beyond my limits or it's exploring and I want to challenge myself. But that discontent when you're wandering or walking or in your journey with God can be a really challenging space too. My history of hiking and walking with my family has often been that driven, there's a destination, let's get there. That's what hiking is for. That's what walking is for, is to plan where you're going, how you're going to get there, and get there, and then come back, right? The only thing to see is at the end, and then you walk back again. That's the way I treated it. And I remember this time we were were doing that, and my family loved that I did that. Not really. (laughs) But we're walking, and I tend to be the one out front, and I I do walk fast because of my nature and disposition. So I'm I'm walking fast, and I'm out front, and I'm up this path, and I hear this little voice behind me go, Dad! And I tried to ignore it, (laughs) because I knew it was going to mean a delay. So I kept going, and then I hear a little further back, Dad! So just in case there was injury, I turned back. And the moment I saw my daughter Holly, who was probably all of five at the time, she's just looking down. And I'm like, oh, no. I'm like, what? And I don't go back. I stand up the path. I'm like, what? And she goes, Dad, come and look. 
I'm like, we don't have time to look. We got somewhere to be. No, Dad, look. And then Donna is back there already, and then she's giving me that look like, come back and look. So I begrudgingly, reluctantly, slowly retrace my steps, hoping that this wonder would soon pass and they would catch up to me. But they stayed looking in this, what turned out to be a puddle. A puddle in the middle of a path. I avoid puddles in the middle of a path when I'm walking. My daughter's standing looking at a puddle. And she goes, Dad, a wolf. And I'm like, a what? A wolf. So intrigued, I look, and there in the middle of this puddle in the mud at the bottom is a footprint. And I realize that my daughter, who has decided to call it a wolf, is errantly speaking about a wolf, a W-O-L-F, that she believes she's found a footprint of in the pond. I was happy to tell her she was wrong. At the time, wolves were not introduced back into Colorado, and it was probably a coyote, so let's keep going. I turned to go, and she goes, what do you think it was doing? I don't care what it was doing. We have a destination and a time frame in which to accomplish this. Let's go. No, Dad, what do you think it was doing? Oh, my. All of a sudden, something happens in me. And I'm like, you've got a choice right now whether to engage the moment or leave wonder behind and get to your destination. And so I stopped and I said, I don't, I don't know what it was doing. What do you think it was doing? And Holly began to just beautifully share what she believed this coyote was doing and it was probably looking for dinner and it was probably following those other footprints that she had also discovered a little bit further off the path. And that day we never made it to the end of our hike. And it wrecked my day. No, it changed my day. Wrecked is the wrong word. It changed my day. And I've never forgotten the experience of it. You know, our wandering, our journeying, there's sometimes a byproduct of the circumstances we find ourselves in. Sometimes. But it doesn't mean they're always aimless or without purpose. And they can definitely be longer than we like. So this morning I've decided to entitle this little talk, Searching for God Knows What. Searching for God Knows What. And I hope by the end of this morning, you'll understand why it's entitled that. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 19. If you've got your Bible, 1 Kings is right between 2 Samuel and 2 Kings. And we're going to go to chapter 19. 
If you don't have a paper version, which I still like to have, uh, get an app on your phone. The Bible app is just such a good one. It's got every version you'd like. And this morning I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Beginning in verse 3 of chapter 19, it says this, Elijah was afraid and he fled for his life. And he went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. And then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. And he sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. And then he lay down and he slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him, woke him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank. The food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And there he came to a cave where he spent the night. The Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you and torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. And I am the only one left Now they're trying to kill me too. Now go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by. And a mighty windstorm hit the mountain, such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn free. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've zealously served you. The Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel into the wilderness of Damascus. It's a fascinating passage to me. There's very little we know about the actual journey, but it was long and I believe painful. We find something out about Elijah and what led him into this actually in chapter 18. And in chapter 18, and I'll summarize it because I'm not going to read the whole thing. There's this season that Israel has gone through and there's a drought in the land because Elijah proclaimed from God there would be a drought. And this drought's been like three and a half years long. And Elijah's had miraculous things happen during that time, but he's also been under incredible threat during that time. There's an evil queen, evil king, Ahab and Jezebel, who are ruling the land at this time. And they basically put a bounty on his head and said, we're going to kill you. We find you, we're going to kill you. 
And then God speaks to Elijah and says, go and present yourself. And Elijah's like, I do that, they're going to kill me. Now, during this time, there's a prophet, Obadiah, and he has a book in the Bible as well. But what he has done is under this threat of Jezebel, they're going to kill all the prophets. He hides a hundred of them, 50 in two different caves, and he provides them food and water and he's preserving them. Anyway, as Elijah's going to present himself, Obadiah and him meet. And Obadiah's like, oh my goodness, it's you. You're still around. And Elijah's like, yeah, I'm going to go and present myself. I'm the only one left. And Obadiah goes, you haven't heard. While you were away, I actually hid a hundred prophets and, and I fed them and watered them. Like Obadiah tells Elijah this. And so Elijah's like, that's great, thank you. Keeps going. And then when he gets basically to the, the kingdom headquarters, he goes, I'm the only one. It's like, What? You just met Obadiah on the road and he told you there's another hundred and sometimes it doesn't matter how good the news is or how true the news is. When we are stuck in a mindset, we are stuck in a mindset. And this is where Elijah goes into this big day that everyone sort of you know, wonders at the power of God that's on display, but we don't realize that Elijah goes into this in a pretty bad mindset. What happens is he, he goes and he says to Jezebel, who loves the prophets of Baal and loves these, this other group, and there's like 850 of these prophets of false gods all together. And Elijah says, gather everyone. We're going to have this out once and for all. He says to the people, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. So let's have a contest. And the contest is generally well known, but I'll refresh your memory. Or if you haven't been exposed to this story before, I'll tell you quickly. Elijah sets up a contest and says, let's see who, whose God shows up for the sacrifice. He, goes, he says to these prophets, you guys go first. Build your altar get your firewood, get your animal out, and then let's start calling down fire and see whose God shows up. Prophets of Baal go all day long, cutting themselves, singing, dancing, whatever they were doing, and nothing happens. And Elijah finally says, enough, my turn. He said, but before I do, let's cover mine with water, lots of water, heaps of water. Let's flood it. Let's soak it. It's impossible for this thing to light by natural means. And then he says, if God is God, do your thing. And, and the whole thing just like blows up and burns. And it says it burns the entire offering, all the wood and the altar. There is nothing left. And then Elijah says, okay, good. Now get all of those 850 prophets and kill them. It's brutal. But this is Elijah's day. And then he says to Ahab, there's going to be rain now. And so he goes out and, longer story short, he sees rain coming. And he says to Ahab, let's get back, get back to the city because it's coming and it's coming hard. So Ahab starts in his chariot and Elijah starts running and it says he tucks his cloak in his belt and outruns a horse and chariot about 25 miles. That's a big day. Elijah has had a big day. 
He has seen God show up in fire. He has seen God show up in rain. He has seen this incredible sacrifice happen. He has seen 850 false prophets killed in front of him at his word. He has seen the drought broken. He has seen this storm arrive. He has outrun a horse and chariot for 25 miles. You'd think he'd be pretty chuffed. Like, it would change things. But Ahab goes and tells Jezebel, you wouldn't believe what happened today. 850 people by, killed by Elijah and this incredible sacrifice, blow-up thing happened and then Elijah outran me the whole way back. And Jezebel is an impression. She goes, good, I'm going to kill him. Like, she's a dark woman. I'm going to kill him. Word comes back to Elijah. Jezebel's going to kill you. You'd think he'd go, really? Bring it. I just killed 850 prophets. I just outran a horse and chariot. I'm up for one. But he doesn't. This is where we hit chapter 19 and verse 3. It says, Elijah was afraid. Now, I, I don't know... Maybe you picture Jezebel differently. Maybe she is like a female version of Goliath. Like she is nine feet tall and she is super muscular and she's really going to do a job on Elijah. But I don't. I think she's just a really dark, intimidating woman. Elijah goes on this run. I just... What I realize when I see this is what James says in James chapter 5, that Elijah was a man just like us. I really like that passage. It's both encouraging and comforting that God can use any of us, but he also can comfort any of us in our fear and in our wanderings. So here's this threat, and he takes this journey into the wilderness. I, I don't know all of why, and we're not told why, and, and I do a lot of what I call Tim thinking, and some of the things I'll share are just, it's just Tim think, and you don't have to take notes on Tim think. It's not authoritative. It's just things I've thought about. But I wonder if Elijah's expectations were really high of that showdown. That this was actually now the moment that the course of Israel's history was going to change. That with that destruction of those prophets, with the de demonstration of God's authority, it was going to change. But it didn't. Maybe he thought more of himself Maybe he thought that this was going to be sort of his moment, that he was going to launch into this whole new level. I hate that term, actually. I really don't like when people preach these seasons and like, God's going to usher us into this whole new level. I'm like, I don't like that because I often end up in the basement. And we have this idea that the whole new level is this up and up and up. And sometimes it's just flat not. So anyway, Elijah thinks it's, it's going to be big for him, but it's, it's just not. He was a fugitive, his life was under threat, and he's not welcomed back. He's now a fugitive and his life is under threat. Great change. 
It's really hard for him. And so I really believe this 40 days that he enters into is not a victory march. I believe it's a really painful walk. And there's a lot of people who have debated whether 40 days is actually 40 days or is it the Bible just saying as old scribe writers would, it's just a longer period of time. Because 40 days is far too long to walk from Beersheba to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. It, it means that he's doing about six miles a day. When you walk an average of someone walking with intent walks about four miles an hour, he's doing about six and a half miles a day. And people are like, well, that doesn't make sense. But I tell you what, when you're depressed and when your feet are dragging, and when you are in fear or hiding, I can easily see six miles a day. I can see 40 days. And it's dark. And on his first day, he just crawls under a tree and goes to sleep twice. Do I think the other 40 days were different? I don't know if you've ever been depressed. I used to think I wouldn't get depressed but I've been depressed. And I don't want to talk to people. And I would rather crawl under a tree and just sleep and hope it would go away. But it doesn't. So these 40 days that Elijah begins, I believe, are painful. I don't know if you've felt that way. That you've come into a season and it was going to be different from here that you were going to live differently, be better, do better. Better husband, better wife, better father, better mother, better child, better worker, better disciple of Jesus, better witness, and just doesn't. You just go, poof. I do that. Have hopes that end up me sleeping under a tree. But this is the first point of hope. Here's the first point of hope. God doesn't abandon us, but rather meets us in our point of weakness. God doesn't abandon us. He meets us. Where do you see that? Elijah crawls under this tree. And an angel, I don't believe under its own intent, but ushered by God, wakes up Elijah and goes, Hey, buddy, eat something, drink something. And Elijah sort of wakes up and there's this prepared meal. I love the angel doesn't wake him up and go, hey, you better, you better prepare something for yourself. You better cook something. It's the last thing you feel like doing. The angel provides this baked bread, a jug of water and goes, refresh yourself. And Elijah just does it and it doesn't seem to be any conversation. What does he do? He curls back up and goes back to sleep. We don't know how long the angel wakes him up again. And these words I think on so often. Wakes him up the second time and says, arise and eat because the journey is going to be too great for you without it. And so he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to the mountain of God. You know what? That tells me, firstly, God ushers him into his 40 days. 
God knows he's going into this 40-day journey because he says to him, you need to be sustained for it. And I also reckon that God knows Elijah's intent to end up at Horeb or Sinai because he gives him this provision and goes, it's a long journey and it's going to be way too much for you if you're not sustained. Horeb, Mount Sinai. This is the mountain where God first reveals himself as God to the people of Israel and makes a covenant with them that he will be their God and they will be his people. I'm going to read you a little bit here. Because I believe that Elijah is on his way to Horeb or to Sinai with a really deep desire. It's a miserable journey, but he has hope at the end. And I believe his hope is this, that he is going to encounter God the same way Moses encountered God. Because Sinai Horeb is significant to the people. So I'm going I'm to read it. Elijah gets there and he goes into a cave and he spends the night in that place. Says, well, and then God comes to him and goes, what are you doing here, Elijah? This is what kind of strikes me in this. Elijah doesn't say, hey, look, I've been hiking for 40 days and uh, my perspective has changed. I've really got some clearer thinking now. He recites exactly the same thing. 40 days later, he says, I've been really zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed the prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. 40 days walking, believing that. 40 days walking under the cloud of that. It's only me, 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 me. And the more you think on me, 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 the darker it gets. I think he was aware of himself, that his feet hurt, that he was probably hungry and thirsty by now. But I love that when he gets there, God's there. And he's immediately questioning, what are we doing here, buddy? Here's my second point of hope. God doesn't abandon us in, dark, in the darkness of fear and doubt. God does not abandon us in the darkness of fear and doubt. Here's the thing is he accomplishes, is, is he accompanies us to the point of revelation, not just to the destination. And this is what God does. He's already prepared this space and he's meeting with Elijah. I love it. It was referenced last week, Psalm 23, where David is in this conflict in Psalm 23. He says, even if I walk into the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I don't think that it means that God gave him his rod and his staff and said, off you go. I believe that illustrates God's company with him under that valley of the shadow of death. But in the next thing he says, and you prepare a table before me. So at the end of this valley, there's provision for me. There's a place of us meeting together. And this is what Elijah finds too. So here's what happens. He says, go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains, broke the rocks. 
He wasn't in the wind. There was an earthquake and he wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire. But the Lord wasn't in the fire. See, Elijah, I believe, goes looking for the earthquake and the wind and the fire and that manifestation of God because that's what happened in Exodus. In Exodus 19, 16 through 19 and then 20, 18 and 19. Listen to this. The morning of the third day, and this is Israel gathered at Horeb. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared, lightning flashed, a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast like that of a ram's horn, and the people trembled. Moses led them out of the camp, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed into the sky. The whole mountain shook violently. The blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, and then Moses spoke, and God thundered his reply. When the people heard the thunder and the blast of the ram's horn, they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke from the mountain. They stood at a distance, trembling with fear, and said to Moses, you speak to us, we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us or we're going to die. And I believe Elijah is going to this mountain to experience the same thing and hear the same thing. That you are my mouthpiece that I have confirmed this to you and I affirm you and here's my demonstration of myself and Elijah shows up and God doesn't do it. You reckon you'd be bummed? Like this has been a dark 40 days and I've come to this mountain peak expecting God to meet me the way I want him to meet me. And he just doesn't. I don't know if you've ever experienced something like this, this real longing for God to answer you. Hear me. Say something to me. Do something for me. And here's my list of what it should look like. And God just doesn't do it. And at this point... This is where I see a lot of people throw in the towel on their faith. Well, God didn't, therefore God isn't. You know, I've gone through dark times. I've gone through times where I wanted God to do and I wanted God to say and I wanted God to be everything I know he can be in my moment it's like he's just not doing it like I think he should. And it is hard. But what does happen is this. You go to verse 12, and in the New Living Translation, it says this, and after the fire, a gentle whisper. Many versions read this, after the fire, a still small voice. But I want, to, I want to pause there just for a moment because I think we like to think of it as a voice because <laughs> God's saying something. But actually, if you go through the Hebrew, it may not actually mean voice. It may not be words and speaking. And there's a couple of other translations that I'd like to refer to. The Bible in the basic English translation says this in verse 12. And after the earth shock, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. 
after the fire, the sound of a soft breath. I love the Wycliffe translation. It says this, and after the fire, there was a hissing of the wind as if softly breathing. And there was the Lord, and the Lord was there. Maybe, and this is Tim Think, okay? This, you can do what you want with this. You can't do what you want with Scripture, but you can do what you want with what I think. I wonder if God isn't just standing with a sense of presence behind Elijah's shoulder. And here is this rushing wind that tears into the rocks and breaks rocks. And here is this earthquake that shakes everything. And here comes this fire that is consuming. And Elijah's waiting for the thundering voice like Moses heard. And what he feels is a breath on the back of his neck that is just the Lord's presence standing there with him. And maybe all he hears is the breathing. You know, I wonder sometimes if we don't miss God because we're looking, we're chasing the signs and wonders and we're running all over the place because we think that's where he is and he's just standing with us breathing. I've done chasing I've wanted to see God. I've been from revival to revival. And doesn't carry you through the dark, dark, long walks. What I've come to rest in is that God is. And when all I'm left with is the fact that he is who he said he is, that's going to have to be enough. Are we okay with him breathing in the silence? That's a tough question. It's easy in here to go, oh yeah, yeah, I'm good with that. Wait till you're at the end of 40 days of wanting to encounter him and he just stands there breathing with you. It's hard. When we left the States, and I used to live in the States and I was working in local church here and we felt like God called us to go out to Australia and our church uh, sent us, we, we went. And we had this expectation, man, we were gonna be doing what God wanted us to do. And with, within about five years, I was ready to pack up and come back because people didn't like me. And that sucks. And we weren't seeing the stuff we wanted to see happen. And, and I was being told by church leadership people that uh, had given me leadership. They were just telling me, you can't be who you think you are. You don't have those gifts you think you have. And there was this, just this crazy opposition. And then I was invited to come back to the States and go to Nashville and be a part of a, a church down there. And I'm like, cool, God's taken us on this long, long journey around to get us to where he really wants us to be. And I was ready to pack up Australia and go to Nashville because there was a fairly high-profile person that had invited me. 
And he said to me, you are all those gifts. That is who you are. And so I went back to Australia and we're like, okay, we're gone. We're leaving. We're going back to the States because people like us there. And then God threw someone that I wish had never opened their mouth. So do you think that God's called you to Nashville? Because even if there's one tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of doubt that you shouldn't go to Nashville and you should hold the course in Australia, then stay in Australia. I'm like, really? One tiny, tiny little bit of doubt is all that I need to stay in Australia? And we stayed in Australia for the next 14 years. And was it easy? No. We did see great things. But then just a couple of years ago, we felt like God opened the door. We we'd finished up the ministry we were doing there, and it was just such an awesome season in there, really wonderful. And we felt like God said, back to, back to the States you go. And so we've come back just over a year ago now. And we felt like we were coming back here with purpose. And guess what? It's a dark, long walk of a year now. I still don't know why we're here. I love, don't get me wrong, I love my kids more than anything. And I love being grandpa, and I love having this little voice in the morning to go, hey, grandpa, are you down there? But we went from this beautiful home we lived in to two rooms in a, in a basement that, gosh, I'm privileged to live in. I get to live in my kid's basement and drink beer and play video games. <laughs> no, I don't really, but some days. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, I'm working a job for minimum wage, walking a whole lot every day. I'm transporting at the hospital, and, and I do love what I do. But I'm kind of, I genuinely going, God, what? And sometimes I just feel like he's there going. I'm like, where's the lightning, the earthquake, the wind, the thunder, the something? And then I think God sometimes gets this little wry grin on his face that makes you want to go, okay, what are you thinking? And he's just got this look. It's not easy. But I'm there. Maybe you're in this place. And I still don't know exactly what Elijah heard, but I know he heard something. But then I really like that after a little bit of space, this voice comes again and goes, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I don't think it's just the location. I think he's asking Elijah, why are you in the space that you're in? What are you doing here in depression and anxiety and longing? What are you still hoping for? What's Elijah say? Oh, it's, it's okay, I'm content now. He says exactly the same thing again. I'm still the only one. But here's your third point of hope. And I know I've spoken a long time. But I used to preach multiple times a week and it's been well over a year. So 
you're just going to be here a long time. <laughs> no. Your third point of hope is this. God is not done with you because you are wandering or you're in a dark place. And I'm going to say that again. Your third point of hope is this, that God is not done with you if you are wandering or find yourself in a dark place. Because I really like that he, after everything Elijah says, God doesn't try and talk him off this ledge that he's on. He doesn't. He doesn't give him any encouragement that it's going to get better. He doesn't tell him, hey, look, I'll, I'm just going to bring closure to this right now. Let me help you understand. He actually just says to him, he, there's no conversation. The Lord just says to him, go. Return on your way. What? It took me 40 freaking days to get here. For you to tell me to take 40 days and go back and in fact go further than I was because Beersheba is at the bottom and Damascus is way up north and east, that's going to take me 60 days, maybe 80 the way I'm feeling. God doesn't give him much except this. I'm not done with you. Go back the way you came. And then I've got some jobs for you to do. But I've also got a new guy, Elisha, that I want you to go and take along with you. Now, a lot of people here think that that's the end of God's call on Elijah. I've heard that preached. That Elisha was, God basically said, you're going to go and handpick the guy that's going to replace you because I'm done. But it's not, it's not true. If God was done, why? At the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus' glory is revealed as the Son of God, the two people that are there meeting with Jesus are Moses and who? Elijah. The two people that sought him out at Horeb. God is not done because of the darkness. God is not done because of the depression. God is not done because of darkness. God is not done because of doubt. God is not done because of silence. God is God who calls, strengthens, walks with, meets us, breathes with us, and continues with us. So I finish with this. You see, actually, I'll just... Backtrack one second. Moses and Elijah. I just wrote these notes for myself. They were two individuals who knew both power and weakness, presence and longing, and miracles and shortcomings. Both of them, Moses and Elijah, side by side with Jesus. So as I close, I say this. Realize that even in your faith, you're mortal. In our faith, we are mortal. One key to learn is actually find rest for yourself. Find things that refresh you. Recognize God has not abandoned you. He's with you. When you're running or you're plodding, in your weakness, if you don't feel like the man of God, the woman of God, the child of God, he's not left you. He's not condemning you. He wants to encourage you, provide for you, strengthen you, sustain you. He knows where you are. 
He knows what you need. And he's always calling us to walk with him. So be sure. God is not wanting to use you and discard you. He's never wanting to use you and discard you. I believe he wants us to find rest in him and be restored. He listens to our complaints, but he does want us to get our eyes off ourselves. He wants to speak to us. He wants to restore us, and there is hope. Jeremiah 31 says this, Refrain your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears. Your work will be rewarded, says the Lord. So there's hope for your future. Galatians 6, 9 and 10, which has been a life verse for me. Don't become weary in doing good. For in due season you'll reap a reward or a harvest if you don't quit. But as much as you have opportunity, do good. Especially to those of the household of believers. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares and anxieties on me because I care for you. So wherever you are, know this, that God goes with you. He prepares a place for you. And he will meet with you. There's a song that's been really significant that I think fits this perfectly. Because it's a song that talks about this place of weariness and discontent. But it also comes to a place of resolve where all I have is not what I can do or be or perform but it's just me so I'm going to invite you to just listen to the words this has been significant at various points in my life but as I was finishing up my preparation for this um, this song just really struck me so I want to share it believing that it's an invitation to us as well. And I really like that I get to sing with my daughter. Father Almighty, God of all power, of all might, of all authority, God of signs and wonders, God of refuge, God of strength, we come in those places we're weary, lonely, discouraged, trying to make sense of circumstances and the days we live in. We come and we just bring ourselves into your presence. However you want to meet with us. But I bring me.
Everything. 
Lord, I thank you that we do get to just bring ourselves and know that you hear us and that you answer us. That our questions aren't too big and our doubts aren't too dark. And our fears don't ever impose on you. And I pray that whatever part of the journey each of us are on, that we would know that your presence is enough. And I pray, almighty God, that today each of us here would know that it is you who has blessed us and will bless us. That it is you who has kept us and will keep us. That it is you whose face is turned towards us. That you have not turned your back on us. That it is the light of your countenance and your wise counsel lifted upon us and you don't refrain. And God, it is you who is the God of peace. The peace that passes all understanding that sets watch over our hearts and our minds. And may we know you today. And I thank you that in our search, it is you who knows exactly what we need. Thanks. Amen. There's a couple of questions if you want to consider them that will come up on that screen. Um, But we're just going to leave it there. I really do pray that you would know the presence of God this week. And thanks for indulging a rather long time. But there are donuts and there is coffee. God bless you. Amen.